Welcome to The Laws of Style, featuring conversations on creativity, fashion, and the law from the leading edge of our economy and culture. Hosted by noted fashion lawyer, Douglas Hand. Hello, and welcome to The Laws of Style. I'm your host, Douglas Hand, and for this episode, I'm joined by fellow fashion lawyer, Caitlin Puccio. Thank you for joining us here today, Caitlin. There really isn't much of a roadmap I found into the industry. And I find a lot of my students, you know, ask the same question, how do you get into fashion law? So Caitlin, what was your path? Yeah, so my path was that I started as a model. Uh, so very non-traditional if there is a traditional fashion law path, uh, which I don't think there is. Uh, so I started as a model. I was on the other side of things. And what happened was I found that I was refusing to sign contracts and I thought okay well I'm not going to get anywhere if I'm not signing representation contracts because I didn't like some of the terms. Uh, so I decided to move to the other side of things. Um, I was still doing a little bit of modeling while I was in law school before during and after law school, but I am now full time 100% on the law side. Well, so let's, before we get into the law side, let's talk about the modeling side and in particular, you know, the business of modeling. So um, for viewers that aren't aware, and, and, and this is uh, what I love about the practice of fashion law is it's much broader than people actually imagine. And this is a great topic for that because the modeling side of things obviously involves the models and the agencies and that whole ecosystem of mother agent and agent. And can you just walk our listeners through that ecosystem and the economics of it? Sure. So there's a lot of moving parts here with the agency manager, mother agent system. So basically the terminology is really important. So you have model agents, which in a lot of instances are actually model management companies. They'll call themselves agents, um, but to be an agent in most states, for example, in New York, uh, you need to be licensed to be an agent. So even though they call themselves agents, a lot of them are not licensed uh, and they're therefore management companies. Mm -hmm. So the the ecosystem there is a little bit funny in New York. In California, uh, the laws are much more clear because they have the Talent Agency Act, which specifically delineates models, model agencies. It tells you exactly what you need to do to procure work for models. Um, one of those things is be licensed. So then there's the mother agents, uh, which they're not booking agents. So they're not procuring work for models. So they are placing models in model agencies, which are the booking agencies, which are in reality, the unlicensed uh, model management companies. So right. there's kind of different tiers of uh, representation that a model might come across. And it really depends on what the function is of the agency management company. Got it. Got it. And so management versus agent, who's the one that actually gets you money, gets you paid? <laughs> that's the, that's the only important part, right? <laughs> it's uh, so the booking agent, whether they call themselves an agent or a manager, if they are booking work for you, they're the ones who are, uh, you know, working with the casting directors or looking at boards or whatever, however they find the jobs, those are the ones getting you the money. It's not the mother agent. 
It might be the manager who's in New York, not supposed to be booking you work, but it might be the manager and it might be a licensed agent. Got it. And they all have to whack up their portion of that dollar that goes to you. Is that correct? So they will take usually. So here's the funny thing. When you're a licensed agent, you are capped at taking commissions. Again, this is in New York, so it's a 10% commission cap. When you're a manager, there's no real regulation. So you can take 20, 30% if you want. The standard is 20% for a manager. And that's why a lot of these booking agents will call themselves management companies so that they can take that higher commission. Um, And the other kind of funny thing is, and of course it's a business, so you understand where they're coming from, but they will take your 20% of your gross income. Plus in a lot of instances, they will charge the client that you're working for 20% service fee uh, for the agent getting you the work, introducing you to the client. So they're in some cases actually taking more money home than the model is. Right, right. And in this day and age of an influencer economy, right, where you have people who are perhaps beautiful or perhaps interesting or perhaps some some special skill, right, that generates eyeballs on them. Um, how do they transact in those types of opportunities? Because I get the traditional role of I'm going to get you booked at shows or I'm going to get you booked editorially. And that those are sort of, you know, two areas that a model can monetize. But do they do a job of also trying to find models, either influencer deals or collaborations? Yes. So their influencers are a big deal in in modeling right now. So basically what happens is if 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 I'm a, an influencer, I say to a potential agent, I have 20,000, 30,000, 40,000 followers on Instagram. Um, that makes me a, a niche influencer in this area. Um, maybe we can work together finding me opportunities where I can post something uh, for a brand that wants to speak to my 20,000 followers. There's micro-influencers and then there's grander scale influencers who have millions of followers. So those types of deals, they're they're more collaborative, I would say, than sort of the general, um, the standard traditional type of modeling work. Um, But a lot of it is, you know, that I'm going to pay you for a post. I'm going to pay you how many thousands of dollars for one post on Instagram or to post three times or to create some sort of content that features my brand uh, because I know it speaks to the audience that you have on your on your Instagram page or Twitter or whatever it is, mostly Instagram uh, and TikTok, I guess, at, at this point. Um, but it's it's a new economy and that's what makes it interesting because it is a different type of model some would say they're not actually models they're they're influencers but not models some would say they are models and influencers there's a lot of terminology that can get thrown around but it's a different type of business model and it really just depends on what the brand is looking for yeah yeah um have you ever been involved in situations where the brand was not paying in cold hard cash but paying in product and if so, how did the manager or agent even deal with that? Did they take 10% of the clothes? Say, <laughs> that's the hard part, isn't it? So 10% of what then? Right. Um, so actually, when I started modeling myself, 
Uh, of course, a lot of models start with this trade experience. So I'm going to model for you in exchange for clothes or product or whatever it is, which is fine if you're building your portfolio. Um, and usually those types of things come before the representation stage where you're trying to get your name out there. You're trying to build that book so that you can then take it to a rep and say, look, here's what I've done, even though you know it's not really paying in cash it's the payment is not necessarily the product or the clothes that you're getting it's in that photo that you can then add to your portfolio so i've done things like that when i was just starting out not expecting there to be a cash exchange i know that um when i was working with uh agents or managers uh, in my professional career it was never an exchange of product because there is no, I mean, it's a business for the agency. Their business is, it's, it's what is their financial gain? You know, what is their profit? What is their income? The, you can't run a business on a t-shirt or a dress, you know? So it's, I'm sure there are some deals, some very particular deals that go through because it's, you know, we want to, uh, make sure that this relationship is solidified or whatever it is but for the most part it is a cash uh business at modeling the whole industry is i mean yes it's fashion it's glamour it's all those things sure but it's a business first so the for the most part it's going to be a financial transaction yeah yeah well and and glamour i mean i'm sure you could tell us probably some harrowing stories i mean the modeling industry certainly has its issues. Now, I do want to get into those, but let's stay, um, you know, and, and on the business side and maybe move a little bit into your practice. So now we know the players, managers, agents, the models themselves. Are you church state with respect to who you represent or do you represent both <laughs> agencies and models? I represent everyone. Um, generally, I don't represent, if there's a model, um, who brings me a management contract and I'm already representing that manager uh, on their management contract. I'm not going to just represent that model because that would be a conflict of interest, right? But what I will do is work with both sides to come up with the best contract for both sides. And I've found that um, when there are no conflicts or when they can be ironed out with both sides in agreement, um, on both sides of the table that the final contract can actually be better for both parties involved. Everyone kind of tends to be happier. Um, I do work a lot with models on their contracts. I work a lot with um, model managers who aren't sure if they are running afoul of the law by calling themselves management companies and not agents. So I walk them through that business, that fine legal line between agency manager. Yeah, yeah. And do you find that many of the agencies, large or midsize or small, do they have in-house counsel or do they really rely on outside counsel? Usually they do have in-house counsel. The smaller ones don't necessarily, um, just because it's a, an expense. If they're boutique agencies, it's generally not in-house counsel, but they generally do have, um, uh, for the larger agencies, there will be a, a legal department who is in charge of that contract, that representation contract. Um, so when you're a model and you're negotiating your contract with your manager, it's not necessarily the case that your manager really has any 
leverage or say in what changes in that contract. It's it's the legal department saying, well, we we're we're going to advise you to not change that, uh, regardless of what the model requests. With the boutique companies, generally what they do is, from what I've seen, they have a standard uh, representation contract that they will send to any models that they want to represent. They'll have that just drawn up by an external lawyer and then just use that as a template for themselves moving forward. Yeah, yeah. Well, the dreaded sort of form document that you prepare for a client and then you find five years later, it's got all these other bells <laughs> and whistles in it. Yes. <laughs> in. Have you seen that? I've, I've seen the, the form documents uh, in all their iterations with, uh, you know, wrong client names and something that doesn't apply anymore because technology has changed. Uh, yes. So the form document is, is basically the enemy <laughs> of, of my law practice. It's fine in the beginning, but you got to revisit it every once in a while. Well, so let's talk about that contract. You obviously negotiate them on both sides. So give us, you know, as if you were addressing my my fashion law class, uh, you know, just some of the high points of the contract itself and how it functions for both agency and model. Yeah, so the first thing I always look at is, is this a an agency or management contract? And that goes back to the distinction between licensed agent or model manager. So the way the contract is written, if it's a model manager who is functioning as an unlicensed agent, meaning procuring work, the contract will not make any reference to the fact that they are supposed to be procuring work for the model. It will say, we are not procuring work, we are working on development, um, we're working on building your career and giving advice and those sort of things that are fine for a manager to do, um, but they can't procure work because they're not licensed. So in a lot of instances, by reading that contract and saying it's XYZ agency and we're functioning as we're doing these management things, you kind of know that they're aware that what they're doing is not exactly in line with what the law allows them to do. So then you have to say to the model, okay, the what the contract says and what the reality of your relationship is going to be are very different. So the purpose of a model signing with an agent is to get work. Yes, they can develop the career, they can give advice, they can build the book, all those things, but they want to work. <laughs> I mean, that's that is the point when you go to an agent and you say, yes, I want to you know, work with you. It's to find work. Um, the reality is not reflected in the contract in all instances where it's a management, where it's purporting to be a management contract, at least. So that's one of the first things I look at. Is the reality going to line up with what's in the contract? Because then if the model goes back and says, I want to leave the agency because they are not getting me enough work and therefore uh, we need to um, uh, dispel with this. Uh, we, we can't work together anymore. Well, the contract that the model signed doesn't in all likelihood say that the uh, management company needs to procure work. So they're not in any sort of breach of contract. So getting out of that contract might be a little bit tricky. Um, there are other more simple things that I look at. The term, usually it's three years, which I think is very long. Uh, so, you know, kind of look at those 
little littler terms that have a, a big impact on the model. Um, but in, in general, it's really looking at not just the terms individually, but as a whole, uh, how the terms interact with each other and what type of contract you're given. Well, it's a, it, ancient history really in my practice, but eons ago, uh, my firm was engaged to represent the buyer of IMG's men's modeling division. And one of the things we found is that not surprisingly, the contracts themselves aren't assignable and mm -hmm. for the obvious reason, you know, you're my agent, or I, I would imagine this is the same for manager. And I don't want you assigning that to some other agent. I picked you for a reason. Um, yeah. But in the context of an M&A transaction, it actually made it very, very difficult to bring those contracts over to the buyer. Essentially, what it was was a period of exclusive dealing to go to each model and say, would you enter into a new contract with me? Because by the way, I'm buying the whole division and it's no longer going to be operating. So you have every reason to enter into a contract with me. But ultimately, right. it was a funky structure. And um you know, I guess I wonder what your thoughts, this is a little bit of a pivot, but um, you, you undoubtedly saw that CAA, the agency was purchased recently, or at least it was announced that it will be purchased um, by a major, major European player, right? Uh, the big conglomerate Caring, um, yes. or it is going to be acquired by the owner of Caring. And I think it will sit as a sister company. What, what are your thoughts on that? Where, what do you think the, um, you know, the business case for that acquisition was? So I think I love this idea. <laughs> I was very excited when I saw this. Um, I can see why some people might think that that's not the best of ideas, but here's why I think it's a great idea. So from a business perspective, from, from Caring's perspective, they've acquired CAA, which is a major, major player. They represent the biggest names in talent, what they can do now is add a modeling agency arm in the same way that they have a sports arm and things like that. Um, and then now there's no way for me to know if this is what caring uh, and, and the, the powers that be were thinking, but this is what I, if I were in charge of caring, this is how I would be thinking about it. So if we have the modeling agency side of CAA, that will attract a lot of top models, particularly if we treat them well. Um, there is no model union like there is an actor's union. So treating models well would be a big draw uh, for a lot of the big name models. So if CAA attracts the top models, any of the caring brands can use in-house, essentially in-house models, meaning CAA models for their campaigns, for their runways, whatever it is. And those contracts would be more favorable to models because it's an in-house caring brand working with another in-house caring brand. Um, so there's going to be no real in-house fighting, um, no you know one-sided contracts where the terms are so lopsided because you know Mama Caring is just going to come say no, that's not going to work because that destroys uh, or is that that's not conducive to our business as a whole. And essentially, if they're sister companies, um, it, you know, the success of one does contribute to the success of another. Uh, so the contracts might be more fair for models. Models will flock to CAA 
And then what I imagine happening is that there would be a um, an exclusivity clause in the modeling contract. So the models who are CAA models can only work for caring brands. That doesn't really limit them because there are a lot of caring brands. There's a lot of opportunity for them still. But what that does mean is that other fashion conglomerates like LVMH would then be scrambling to find models who are not CAA models. Uh, now, if recall that all the CAA models in our hypothetical world are the big name models because they're treated fairly. So then LVMH, as an example, would be scrambling to find good models, big models, A-list models for their own brands. Um, so it, you know, the, the resulting competitive purpose of acquiring CAA, it, it might not just be for uh, the growth of caring and CAA, it might be for um, giving them a leg up on competition like LVMH. Interesting, interesting. Are there any conflict of interest provisions that would preclude that kind of exclusivity? In other words, because it's a related company, are there any regulations that would govern their ability to take a related sister company asset, meaning that contract and, and put exclusivity in it? Or is that free market? I would think that they would, if this is something that they wanted to do, they would find a way to structure the companies or restructure the companies such that they can do this because they're, you know, if this is something that's going to uh, allow their brand caring as a whole to flourish, they would find a way to, in this acquisition, make sure that uh, the roadblocks to doing something like that would be lessened. So even if it means, you know, restructuring some way that another sister company is set up, I don't see that that would be an issue. Um, I think it depends on the state in which a lot of these companies are set up or even the country in which they're set up. And I'm not an expert on international law, um, but I, I think that uh, the leaders of caring would certainly find a way to make it happen if, uh, if it was going to be a smart business move for them. Well, I think, you know, um, I think the fact that it was not caring that acquired CAA, but it was the parent of caring that is making the acquisition perhaps puts it in that, you know, it, there's at least an ability with two sister companies to be arm's length. Whereas if it's a subsidiary, right, that perhaps is, is, is more, you know, one side of the line perhaps. And maybe yes. that's why they structured it that way. Um, yeah. well, so what is your, you know, for, for the listener who's perhaps an aspiring fashion lawyer or just interested in what is your day-to-day -day like? I get this question all the time and, you know, people probably <laughs> assume your day-to-day -day is, oh, well, you know, I have lunch with models and then I go to a fashion <laughs> show and I go to a yes. store opening party. And so what's your real day-to-day? -day? Yes. No, I just read fashion magazines all day long. It's wonderful. Um, no, I, so my day-to-day, -day, um, it's always an interesting question. I, I love this, this question in a way because it's, um, it's one of the most difficult questions to answer because in reality, day to day uh, changes day to day. Um, it, one day I might be working only with a model on a contract, um, negotiating some ridiculously oppressive term that she's been given in, in her representation. And I might say, you know, um, 
I would advise that because this term is even in here that the agency doesn't have your best interest in mind and you might want to look in another direction. Um, and it's just a, a, you know, a few hours of back and forth about a particular contract and also what it means for that model's future. It might mean that afternoon that I don't work with any models at all and I'm working on the agency side or I'm working on a creative partnership. We talked about uh, influencers and brands. Um, a lot of what I do is also on the business side of things. How can we build um, uh, a creative idea? You know, we have a model here, we have uh, an agent here and they wanna work together in some unusual agency model way, um, whether that's uh, looking to put together a, a video series about the modeling world, uh, you know, what does that look like? So there's a lot of creativity uh, that's involved. It's not very straightforward all the time. It's not just let me look at this contract or let me uh, assist you with the business structuring or something like that. A lot of times it's also let's brainstorm ways to make something really out of the box uh, happen. Uh, so the, and then, you know, the rest of the week kind of falls uh, into place based on what I've done on Monday. <laughs> so the day-to-day -day, um, is, is very, very unpredictable, uh, which kind of makes it fun for me. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I do think that there is more leash, so to speak, in creative industries for lawyers to come up with creative solutions. You know, I would posit that if you work in the automobile industry as an attorney or oil and gas, you know, with no commentary about what that day-to-day -day might be like, there isn't as much of an openness to doing things in a new way or even considering new business ideas. And I, as a practitioner, do really enjoy that as well. Uh, I think most of our lawyers, that's what draws them to, to a firm that has this specialization. So what other areas of law, clearly contracts, and you've got a regulatory overlay, um, I would think immigration as well, Not perhaps not that you would do it, but that you have somebody that you go to, like what other areas of law touch this industry uh, often? Yeah, so... Um... Immigration is interesting. So I uh, just recently spoke with someone who had been contacted by um, uh, Nigerian refugees who were offered a highly oppressive modeling contract. They couldn't understand the language it was written in. There was a lot of um, sort of horrible backstory, things that you don't necessarily equate with fashion law. Uh, come into play. And some of these things I don't deal with, and I have other individuals that I would say, you know, here's here's something that fell into my lap. Is this something you would be able to handle? Um, I do um, work with um, models unions, uh, the individuals who are trying to advocate for models unions, so it's less of actual law uh, in terms of let me read a contract and it's more on the advocacy side of things. Um, anything that I do at Puccio Law is there's an ethics nexus to it. So I do have a, a second part of my law firm, which is based in bioethical issues, um, which sounds like it's far separate from fashion law. But I think in any of the modeling contracts or any of the business uh, collaborations or partnerships, anything that I sort of do in the fashion space, 
I always do with an eye toward ethics. And that's really my specialty is ethics. So if it's, you know, the Nigerian refugees who are having trouble getting out of very oppressive contracts, you know, of course, it's unlikely that they'll be able to pay for my services, but that's where I would come in and, and work pro bono for them because it's something that I'm really passionate about, you know, treating models and humans in general the right way. Um, so, and ethics is so broad and I think it touches essentially everything um, that there are several aspects of, of law that, that fashion law really touches upon. There's business, there's uh, labor law, employment law, which is what goes into the modeling contracts, immigration, yes, um, and understanding the differences and the interactions between different state laws. How does California law uh, inform New York law or the interpretation of it? So there's a lot of moving parts. Indeed, indeed. Well, you know, on ethics, fashion perhaps more writ large um, and on the garment production side specifically has had a fraught relationship with not only labor uh, and fair wage, uh, but also environmental issues. Uh, in your practice, do any of your models take positions um, with respect to that? And by that, I guess I mean, would they refuse to walk, say, for a brand like perhaps Shein, without you know casting any stones, but that has a poor environmental or labor, labor track record? Yes, so what I do when I have models uh, who have certain expectations uh, in, in that space, I will tell them to, even if it's not in their representation contract, have a term sheet of their own that they will present to their agents and say, these are the conditions under which I will and will not work. Um, and if that means they won't walk for a brand that they think is unethical, it's written right there. Everyone's on the same page about it. I do also represent an agency who um, is, is very, very focused on ethics. Uh, the agency wants to pair models, find them jobs only with other ethical brands, other ethical companies. Um, and again, ethics is very broad. So whether that means sustainability or models treatment or whatever it might be, there are certain individuals and agencies who are looking to make little changes to the industry and in the hopes that it will make a greater change in the industry as a whole. In your opinion, what cities are the most stylish? And does that come from, you know, you knowing models that are from those cities and, and, and they really evoke that style or is it from personal travel? I would say that what I view as style is not necessarily uh, evoked by models. It can be, but I like to look at the style of the city in terms of its inhabitants, its people, its everyday style, because style and fashion might be, yes, they're, they're similar, but they're distinct in some ways. Um, I think Milan in Italy uh, has a lot of style. There's, there's the, the people, uh, just everyday individuals walking down the street um, have a lot of style. Maybe not, it, it doesn't matter if I would necessarily wear what they're wearing, um, but they're in general put together. Um, they're, 
they're confident in what they're wearing, they're comfortable, there's an ease, um, it's, it's an effortless comfort. I think that has a lot to do with style. Um, and I would say Dubai uh, also is, is a very stylish city. In, so I've never been to Dubai, but I'm aware of the fashion scene there. And I think everyone should be aware of Dubai in terms of fashion because um, the designers that come out of Dubai, the, the fashion itself, I, I think is very much art. It's an entire world that these designers create um it's very aspirational um there's a lot of element of fantasy and it kind of is very um uh, it transports you to a different world to a different time uh it's i think in that sense dubai is really interesting it has a lot of style because you can sort of pick out designers from dubai in fashion shows or in magazines because it has that quality to it that I equate uh, with high fashion and style. Well, certainly the, the big luxury houses have, have leaned into Dubai because they can afford that luxury price point. A lot of those yeah. in ways that, uh, you know, on a per capita basis, a lot of other countries simply can't. Uh, you know, they, they also, those, those the, the massive cities in that area uh, UAE and, and, and others, I mean, uh, they are retail heavens for, for yes. I mean, those shopping malls are extremely high end, have yep. multiple luxury brands. And so a lot of brands do, you know, do want to have access to that customer for sure. One, I don't, I don't know if you know this. I mean, we do a lot of trademark work. One of the most expensive places to actually get trademarks registered because they just kind of no people brands want to be registered there and will pay it um, yeah you know they do kind of that absurd what you get back has like a wax stamp on it and little tassels come you know it's a very very ornate thing as if um you know in the u.s you just get an e notification that your trademark yep. is registered and there's not <laughs> yes Yes, and that illustrates the point that I was making earlier about how Dubai in general, you know, in even in the, the trademark world, apparently it's, you know, it's that ornate, it's sort of from a different time, it's a different feel, it's just there's something, there's a little bit of personality there that's very distinct. Yeah, yeah. Well, how about individuals? You know, maybe give me three, uh, alive or, or past, and... Um, how they've influenced your own personal style? So I would say that there's no real individual that has influenced me, but I am more influenced by times or eras. So any individual from a certain era um, would, would influence my style. Uh, I'm very influenced, my personal style is influenced by um, a lot of different things. It, it doesn't necessarily need to be by fashion that I see. It could be influenced by art that I see, or it could be influenced by architecture that I see. Um, and I think a lot of fashion designers think that way too. And it's it's not necessarily clothes that they see first, but it's other things in the world that they can distill into um, this this art that you can wear in in the form of dress or a shirt or pants or whatever it is. Um, I'm, I love the, uh, the fifties style because I think for, for women 
it was a very, it, a lot of the clothes are very flattering to all shapes and sizes. And it's for, for me, um, I, I appreciate clothes that make me look good <laughs> without a whole lot of effort. Um, uh, and, but also that it's sort of a very proper time. Everyone was very clean. Everyone was very, um, you know, aware of, of when they're going out, they're presenting themselves in a certain way, which I do appreciate. I also appreciate adding in a little bit of sort of the modern edge or a little bit of flair. Um, so for example, Chiara Boni, um, uh, designer, I love her designs, a lot of dresses. Um, I own a lot of dresses because they're, they're, they're flattering, but they're also, there's a little bit something extra to them. There's a little bit of edge. There's a little bit of um, a, a different type of structure to them. There's there's just something that's more than a dress. Um, and those are the types of things that I look for. Well, very interesting. And that really brings me to lawyerly style, right? Uh, or or lawyerly lack of style. Uh, <laughs> the, the, the profession gets a great... Yeah, <laughs> yeah, for our style choices, um, and and really, I mean, the the podcast's name, "The Laws of Style," came from a book I wrote for the American Bar Association on lawyerly style. But I, I kept it specific to men because I do think for women it is a much more fraught conversation with um, you know issues of of discrimination issues of objectifying and sexualization of women's bodies um how have you approached lawyerly dress to kind of strike what i would say is that balance that most practitioners want to look elegant but also capable and to be taken seriously and look like you are taking the job seriously yeah that's an interesting question because actually for from my perspective a lot of the issue that i run into is not necessarily with my style uh, but with how young i look so i look a lot younger than i actually am which was great for modeling uh kind of extends your career a bit but then you do want to you know as a as a, a female lawyer um show people that you're you're not you know fresh out of school and and doing things just kind of on the fly um which you know i kind of just ignore but it does exist and it's it's something that i think people should be it aware of is absolutely a thing um in, yeah. in terms of of ex careers that you go into where experience is is valued and what i what i said early in my career when i went out on my own um you know with with a group of lawyers from a a much larger firm sherman and sterling was we're going to focus on an industry where you actually want the younger lawyer to be your practitioner because it's an evolving industry. And if they are sort of ground in 30 years of having practiced corporate law in a certain way, you're gonna, you're gonna be in a better position than them. So that's one argument that I had, because I, I, you know, I mean, I'm I'm in my mid-50s now, but I still and, and so I don't worry about it now. <laughs> but yeah. certainly in my 30s, I I I was acutely aware of that issue. And I think um you know, dress can help you uh, appear older. Um, but what else? Yeah. How do you, I mean, you are a very stylish person. You put yourself, how do you get your little elements of, well, I want to sort of have this little piece of flash, 
in yeah. your wardrobe that 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 helps you feel distinct like you're not just going to you know the same conservative dress code yeah, so I do have some style secrets um, and it's not necessarily motivated by my profession, but just motivated by how I would want to present myself in everyday life and it happens to work for my profession so uh, i'm I'm pretty pleased about that, so, for example. Um, not today, but I'm I usually wear a lot of jewel tones I have olive skin tone uh, jewel tones on television tend to pop in person they tend to pop um, and if you contrast the jewel tones you know a, a bright pink or bright blue with a very professionally cut dress it's a nice juxtaposition and then you could pair something like that with you know enormous earrings like I have on today um, and then nothing else and it's just sort of that you know give and take the push and pull of uh, the the two worlds that you're trying to bring together into one um, so that's kind of how I approach my everyday. I also make sure that I think I said earlier that uh, style is not necessarily just fashion, but there's you have to be comfortable and confident. So anytime I put something on, I make sure that I'm comfortable in it because if I'm not, uh, it, it's going to bring down the entire look because I will be tugging at it or something will be out of place. And you know, as soon as you walk out the door, um, you know, your feet hurt or something like that, that doesn't work for me because uh, I think a lot of style is not necessarily, once you're put together, not paying attention to it after that and just uh, being confident and using your words and your brains uh, to then um, speak and, and uh, say what you need to say um, rather than just be distilled into a stylish individual. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. There is a lot of attitude to style, meaning, yes. you know, the phrase, oh, I could never pull that off or look at how she's pulling that off. You know, some people can wear outrageous things and just walk yeah. into a room with confidence. And that does give them some some innate style. Um, yes. Speaking of offices and, um, you know, post COVID, a lot of lawyers have gone to remote practice. What is what is your do you do you see clients in the office or is it mainly through Zoom meetings? How is that working? It's mainly now through Zoom meetings. I used to meet with people uh, in person. I'm licensed in New York and DC. I would go back and forth quite a bit between the two. Um, now there's really no need to. Um, it's easier and quicker and more efficient for people to, you know, if I'm in New York and I have a client in DC, just say, you know, let's let's hop on a Zoom call and and knock this thing out. Um, I do think that there is something to be said for in-person uh, connections, transactions, meetings. I always tell models, for example, if you're negotiating with your agent, try to get them in person because it's very different when it's in person versus over the phone or on Zoom. Um, I think the technology in general, technology can be a very good thing if it's used correctly and if it's not overused. Um, so when I have a chance, I do try to meet with people in person, even if it's not, you know, a meeting, if it's, you know, let's go out to coffee and uh, or I'll see you at this event or something like that, just to have an in-person connection uh, that can then carry through uh, this crazy thing that we call Zoom now. Right, right. Well, in this two-dimensional environment, 
any style pointers that you have in terms of how best to whether it's background i mean mine today is a little wacky but um, <laughs> you know it that's been an interesting thing to me as well you know now in this environment it's not just what you're wearing it's the whole background that you're presenting i mean it's part of a a a complete look so to speak and yes. um, you know we sort of fiddled around as a firm with having our logo at the bottom corner or not, you know, little things like that, having those fake backgrounds. And we really just gravitated into general authenticity. I mean, you take the, the Zoom meeting where you take it, um, but be mindful that people will be, you know, in your case, like maybe I'm looking to see what is on that shelf, if it's, a, you know, a heady book or not yes. so a book. Um, yes. but, but any, any tips you have for young practitioners or maybe older practitioners? Yes. So, and if you are looking at my shelf, it's all carefully curated. So it's okay if you're looking at it. And that's one of my tips is make sure that you are looking at every detail in your background because someone will. Um, I, I have a background in film, so I'm very aware of setting the scene essentially. So my, my most important tip is get your lighting as close to 100% correct as you possibly can, because that will it will tell people so much about you um, just because if they can see you clearly um, there's there's for some reason we think you know they're they're the person that we can see and hear clearly is more authoritative or is just more professional in some way it may not be true but that's how it comes across um, it also if your lighting is incorrect it will create shadows um, it will actually change the way you look. It will change uh, the way things look around you in your background. It will sort of distort things. So you really want to make sure that you get your lighting right. Um, and then in, in terms of your background, you know, I have dark hair um, and I try to keep my background as light as possible so that my uh, dark hair does not blend into my background and, and I don't look like I'm just a 2D image uh in on my wall um so just i would say it always look uh do do sort of a, a trial run before you're on tv or on zoom or whatever it is uh use quicktime or just something that you can see yourself just do a quick recording of yourself and then analyze everything look at your background look at that little shiny thing in the background that's not supposed to be there and get rid of it um really be critical about it um, but it's, uh, you know, the, the backgrounds today will tell people so much about a person, even if it's not accurate, it's, it's just, they're filling in the person that they can't fill in because we don't have that personal connection. One last thing that I'll say, get dressed fully. <laughs> I think people have a problem getting dressed on zoom that they'll get dressed from here up from the top up. Um, but you will their part legs of that style. Get a shot yeah. of you know, their knee or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Part of exhibiting uh that confidence and 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 really relaying the 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 message of the person that you want to be behind your words is feeling your absolute best. And in a lot of cases, when you get dressed fully, you put on shoes, you 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 know, if you're uh painting your nails or whatever it is that that makes you feel your absolute best if you were to walk outside and say yes i feel great today do that 
uh, even if no one sees it, because you will feel it and they will feel it through the screen from you. That's great. Well, Caitlin, we are out of time. That is a wrap, but that was uh, really engaging. And thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. All right. Bye now. You've been listening to The Laws of Style with Douglas Hand. For more information, go to our website at www.hballp.com. And you can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at, at Hand of the Law. Thank you for tuning in and stay stylish.